1: This is where we speak to people who were on the scene during a big moment in New Zealand's history. And tonight we're going back in time almost exactly 30 years to the day to Mount Smart Stadium, 5th of February, 1994. The first big day out was being held on these shores. And one bloke who was there on that day was Murray Kamek, the former editor of Rip It Up magazine. I spoke to Murray uh, earlier today about his memories of that first festival. And I began by asking whether when it was... First announced, the big day out was considered a big deal.
2: Yeah, I think so, because most of us, you know, knew someone in Australia or knew that the event had been massively successful the year before. So it was sort of the first time where you, you could buy one ticket and get a buffet of stuff to, you know, sample.
1: Yeah, I like, because I guess New Zealand. In the, the gig landscape at that point in time, was there anything even remotely close to something like this festival?
2: Well, uh, we'd had previously um, things like Sweetwaters um, and, uh, you know, Nambassa festivals, but the idea of just um, going to something in the suburbs one day, uh, not even a weekend day, in Auckland was a pretty exciting concept, you know. Um, it was sort of... Uh, not it didn't involve, you know, camping out or being adventurous. You could just go there in your nice clothes and enjoy the sunshine and the music.
1: And were you still working at Rip It Rip It Up at, at that at that point in time?
2: Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um uh and it was um we had a, a strong association with um uh the big day out because uh Doug Hood who was promoting he was sort of keen to um identify the festival as being presented by BFM, Rip It Up and Max TV which was going at the time which was Mm -hmm. the local uh, music television network.
1: Because I guess that you know in in that sort of early mid-90s kind of period music media would have been a, a, a real it was a real point in time at that You know, it was, um, I'm not using my words right, but I think you know what I mean, right? That that was a real flourishing, growing time for music media, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, well, it was just, I I guess there was a lot of excitement with um, the whole grunge scene in the 90s. And there was also, um, you know, hip-hop was building in New Zealand. They had about five hip-hop acts on the stage um, that was uh, running at the same time as Soundgarden. Which was cool to have. Uh, I guess it's tough being on the same time as Soundgarden, mm-hmm. but it was good that New Zealand hip hop was getting a profile. And there was about eleven Flying Nun acts, and there was lots of New Zealand acts. So when you look at the bill for the first year, what is a little bit surprising is there's only really two and a half sort of uh, overseas acts, yeah. as well, you know, well or, or maybe three and a half, like there's Soundgarden, Smashing Pumpkins, Breeders, and then Urge Overkill. There it wasn't it particularly strong line-up that first year in terms of foreign acts, but, uh, you know, it's great representation of New Zealand.
1: Soundgarden and Smashing Pumpkins, though, in that mid-90s, they would have been right at the very height of their popularity. Even those two would be a, a pretty big coup to get to get here.
2: Yeah, I th- I'm not sure. Like, 94, I think they're still building those two in right. a not too sure, but I, I mean those are two big ones. But I think later on you would have expected the big day out to have ten foreign acts, yeah. Not you know four.
1: Yeah, yeah. What do you remember about the day itself, Murray?
2: Um. Well, I obviously I was editing Rip It Up then, so you know you had four stages and about four or five photographers taking photos for you, and you're catching up with friends and whatever i was i was uh, taking a few photos on one of the minor stages but it was just an amazing event you know by the time i was um you know doing i was about 40 and it was a, a, a y- younger crowd um than and it certainly wasn't the average age of 40 for yeah. the big day out, you know but it was a uh, good time
1: do you think people knew what to expect, given that it had taken place in Australia for a couple of years in a row? And I suppose there were similar festivals around the world as well.
2: Well, the idea had to be um, sold, really, um, to the public. And um, I I caught up with Doug Hood, the original promoter, um, today for coffee, and he said they sold 15,000 tickets to the first um, big day out, and they basically all sold in the last week. Right Like they didn't have hardly any sales until the last week. The price was fifty dollars or sixty dollars on the day and uh so it, you know I guess they knew it would win out as a concept, but it still had to be sold to the public and uh, in the following years, I'm sure the ticket sales weren't all in the last week.
1: It, it, and that makes sense in a way because it, it's it's tough launching a new an altogether new thing, isn't it? I mean, I don't envy Doug and uh, and and his job, you know, hyping up excitement for something without necessarily being able to point to it and say this is this is what it was like last year. So of course you should go to it this year.
2: Yeah, well, it, it sort of became a sort of annual sort of co- sort of coming of age event. Uh, you know, eventually yeah. it was a very young crowd that went, and um, it's. Um, Oh, it was just really exciting those first few years because of the brilliant cross-section of bands that are, that appeared. And, uh, it was, like, even, you know, I was an editor of a music magazine by then, but it was so great to wander around and see nearly everybody on the day and rather than going to sort of... You know, fifteen pub gigs to see
1: everyone. Yeah, D- tell me a bit more about the lineup actually, and, and the Kiwi acts on there in particular. What can you remember?
2: Well, the I I had the Wildside record label then, so she had Head Like a Hole and Dead Flowers were there on that first year, and she had were on the um, main stage as were Head Like a Hole, and I think that was about the only year Head Like a Hole were on the main stage. But mm. um, the Australians organisers of the Australian leg were probably quite keen to hype the Aussie acts. There was um, Tumbleweed, Sea, UMI, and um, I don't really know that Tumbleweed and Cruelsea ever really built an audience in New Zealand. I know UMI got a pretty dedicated following, Mm -hmm. but I I think the promoter, uh, Doug Hood, had to sort of push against the Australian end of the tour, wanting to... um, uh, use the New Zealand concert to just break or expose Australian acts, mm-hmm. and one of the arrangements that was really good was once a year a New Zealand act would um, travel through the entire Australian uh, circuit of of four or five other gigs. So she had it, did it once in 1996, and it was important for OMC doing it a few years later too.
1: I think she had has the record for the most appearances at, at Big Day Outs Australia and New Zealand actually.
2: Yeah, well, that would sort of make sense. I, I'm definitely New Zealand. I I doubt if it would be they'd hold the record in Australia. I think I, the I no yeah, it's idea. the combined. It's like they I think yeah, a lot. yeah, yeah. Um, the um, uh, they they eventually, I think got they got the sort of dusk or sunset sort of um. Spot um, yeah. on the big stage almost every year and it became sort of an annual event to see she had as the sun was setting down. So I guess that means I'd be the last band without any light show. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they were the first band with a light show. I think they was the last band to not have one. Hmm.
1: You, you talked about, you know, maybe the difficulties of the um, New Zealand leg to, to, to get New Zealand bands um, front and centre. Was was having a gig like the Big Day Out important? Do you think for the the music identity of New Zealand to to keep sort of developing as its own unique thing?
2: Yeah, what, what's important about a, a big show like um, where, where all the acts are on the one stage is you are going to see a New Zealand act with the same PA and presentation standard. To you know, yeah. uh, to some extent. Um, as the internationals are. Obviously, later in the evening, the internationals have got the big uh, lighting rigs and pyrotechnics, but you're still getting all the music through a good quality PA. So it does... uh, The same happened with Sweetwater, is that bands that you'd only ever seen through poor gear at the local pub, you then saw on a big stage with room to move and a good PA. And it it really sort of... um, Help sell the New Zealand
1: acts, you know and yeah, because I guess'm I'm, I'm curious about you know the state of New Zealand music at that point in time, because I guess we'd be coming at that stage to sort of the tail end of the Dunedin sound um, uh, sort of uh, you know, musical movement in a way which which was a, a a real big thing, and other maybe sub subgroups subcategories of music were popping up around the country.
2: Yeah, um, sort of yes and no there. The thing with the Flying Nun um, groups is that about the middle of the um, 90s, they were actually getting their first good budgets to Mm. record good albums that were sort of distributed, you know, by either Arista Records in the USA or Slash Records um, or um, alternate labels over there. So... uh, um, it was more that the Flying Nun sound was coming to a maturity rather than right. the end of, of of the sound, you know what I mean? It was um, So there was still a lot, you know, in the following years, I, I'm sure there were um, strong new albums for groups um, such as The Chills to promote. The only Flying Nun act I can see missing from 1994, when I look, is because um, there were... How many were there? There was about 10 of them there. I, I don't lot, think the yeah. were there that year. They must have been unavailable.
1: <laughs> I imagine there are a lot of logistics in putting on an event like this, especially if one hasn't been put on before and that things could pretty quickly turn chaotic. Um, did they at all, or was it pretty well run, to the best of your memory?
2: Oh, no, it was well run. It was. It's funny, the funniest thing, I, one of the things I thought was amazing was in the information for people going there was... Um, there's no handy bank or cash outlets on the ground. I'm sure by uh, they would have had to have had cash machines there at, at some point in the future because we come to uh, rely on cash machines in the years following 1994.
1: I'll tell you what, they didn't have cash machines there in 2004 because that was my first big day out. I was 13. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I, I only had my FPOS card and, um, and I... <laughs> There were no cash stations, so I didn't eat any food until about seven o'clock at night when some beautiful vendor took pity on me and gave me a free hot dog and a bottle of water. Um, uh, yeah, was, <laughs> yeah, I
2: just don't know, mate. Well, I just, you know, I just assumed that there's cash machines everywhere, sorry. Yeah. No, no. no I it, that was funny.
1: Because, yeah, I mean, it's just, it wasn't, you know, that didn't make it any worse for me, though. It was it was sort of like, it, it was that rite of passage thing, I think, that you're, you were talking about before, Murray, the idea that this was the first big gig that I'd ever been to, um, you know, I'd been sent along by myself with my friend in my jandals, uh, which were a yeah. terrible idea. I should have worn some proper footwear, but I learned that the hard way and had an absolute yeah. blast, and it really did turn into that sort of thing, didn't it?
2: Yeah, well, it's sort of like, um, when you read the information, like the the number one crucial information is bring sunblock and yeah. a cat or hat, and... um I, think, I don't know if it's Rip It Up, so I, I guess it's Rip It Up editorials saying that um, there is a designer hole in the ozone layer just over New Zealand to keep young musicians inside pursuing artistic endeavours <laughs> and thus improving the quality of the popular music on sale in the world today.
1: <laughs> Was there a sense after the first big day out about how big and influential this festival would become in New Zealand?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think it was, you know, everybody would have just been so hyped up by, um, you know, the local music biz would be, you know, so pleased to see acts on stage and presented well. I mean, local acts. And there was a massive excitement around Soundgarden, I recall, Mm. Um, in those in those days and, and you know, Smashing Pumpkins. So I'm, I'm sure everybody would have just gone home if, you know, if they were in a band wanting to get their band there next year or if they were just a fan of, you know, the grunge of the era, they'd want to be back next year to see what was there, you know.
1: Did you get to a few more over the next uh, 20 years or so?
2: Yeah, yeah, I went to a lot of them. I um, I just maybe lost interest, Um. um in the 2000s, somewhere along the line, you know. Uh, I always thought they needed to put, um, I know I'm a soul fan, but I I always thought they needed to have Earth, Wind & Fire on at 7 o'clock in the evening or something different anyway.
1: Yeah, because I guess there's only so much that you can do with a fest- with a mainstream festival like that, right? Like, it's it's hard to take people by surprise after a certain point unless you're pulling in a real big name, which is, I suppose, tough to keep under wraps.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think Glastonbury at some point decided they needed uh, Kenny Rogers and yeah. Dolly Parton and just different acts um, as a something different. But I don't know. It's um, obviously it, it continued on quite successfully. Uh, but the the very first you know event was sort of fifty dollars, and I suspect that. You know, there's not a lot of bands that would demand um, big fees in that lineup, but a few years later, when they had people like Red Hot Chili Peppers or Metallica, mm-hmm. I think they had one year, they would command enormous fees. I think.
1: Yeah, I guess that's the irony success comes at a cost.
2: Yeah, <laughs> sounds about right.
1: It shut down in, in 2014 um, after 20 years. It's a pretty good knock, but I mean, was it a bit of a shame in your mind when it came to an end or did you did you feel that it had kind of done its dash by then and it was time for something else to come in and, and, and pick up and, and and fill that void that Big Out left?
2: Well, I I think it um as a concept, you know, it could have gone on, you know, like, you know, in the UK and, and Europe, there are a lot of festivals like Glastonbury that have gone on for a long, long time. Mm. Um And I do think the one-day concept is just brilliant. So I'm a little bit surprised that it it didn't uh, continue. Um, uh, But I'm just not really sure of the financials Mm -hmm. and um, whether there was any failure in the Australian market. But once they got to paying excessive fees to everybody, it must have been quite difficult. Mm
1: -hmm. Murray, just finally on this, when you think back to that first Big Day Art that you went to back in 1994, what what was the most memorable part of that day for you?
2: Well, I think it was just the musicians, local musicians, um, you know, hanging out backstage and talking to each other and managers talking to, you know, band managers such as Gerald Dwyer talking to uh, younger bands that didn't have managers about things. And it was just felt like the local sort of music community sort of, sitting around enjoying the fact that there's a whole lot of New Zealand music being showcased on um, all the stages, but uh, that's a scene I remember from, you know, stage three or four, Mm -hmm. just the camaraderie of um, having such a great day.
1: Great stuff. Murray Kamek, thanks so much for uh, taking a trip down memory row with us today. Appreciate it. Yeah. And that was Murray Kamek, the former editor of Rip It Up magazine, talking there about The big day out back in 1994. A couple of people listening were actually at that big day out. Someone writes, uh, I was there. Nothing since has come close except maybe Pearl Jam the year later. Uh, Someone else says, I was at the first big day out. It's still the best stadium event I've ever been to. Standout performances were hit like a hole. And the breeders she had also at the height of their Kiwi industrial metal powers. The crowd were great, this person goes on to say because the bands involved still hadn't achieved full mainstream success, so the attendees were genuine enthusiasts. The crowning memory was going on fairground rides while the Smashing Pumpkins played. That's great. Uh, someone else reckons the Magic Numbers were amazing in 2006. And I should fact, I need to fact-check myself here. I didn't go to the Big day in 2004. I don't know why I, I thought that I did. And I didn't go when I was 13. I went when I was 15, and it was 2007. Muse was playing, Tool... Uh, I think the killers played. Ah, oh, it was great. It was great. Fond memories.
0: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman.